This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. They were hurt by what happened as well. And so there was a, an opportunity for them to heal and for me to try to begin to understand what happened to this man that I was beginning to perceive as, like, as a good doctor who had done this horrific crime. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. When Dr. Benjamin Gilmer takes over a small clinic in North Carolina, He's told that he is actually the second Dr. Gilmer to practice there. And the first Dr. Gilmer had murdered his own father in 2004. The book, The Other Dr. Gilmer, details the lives of both Dr. Gilmers and how their lives intersected. Take me back to the beginning. How did you even come across this story? What were your life circumstances? This is a story that found me. I I didn't look for it. It's a story just back to the very beginning that began with me starting as a fledgling doctor in my first job, really just trying to find myself as a physician and then realizing that my predecessor had brutally killed his father. Mm. And then I realized that we shared the same last name, which was a crazy way to start my journey as a <laughs> as a first year out transitional doctor. This is rural North Carolina, which makes it even more odd that the two of you shared a last name. Were you both general practitioners? Is that what your role was in this area? We are both family doctors. Mm-hmm. So he started this clinic, and then I later sort of inherited it. Is it a relatively small town, Fletcher? What was it like when you were there and then when he was there? It's a small place. It's outside of Asheville. Small community sits in a valley. The clinic serves the people of the valley and the hollers beyond it. It's a very tight-knit community that's made up of a lot of different people, mostly rural, but now that Asheville is sort of spreading into the communities around it, it's a diverse group of people. But he was the only doctor during that time, like in the Valley. So he was a big part of that community. He was really tied to the schools. Like he did lots of things in the community and and everybody was wrecked when this happened because they were like, what the hell happened? You know? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about him as a doctor and what everyone found so appealing about him. How long had he been practicing in Fletcher before all of this sort of fell apart in 2004? For about four years. Okay. He was also young in his career. It was in his fourth year that the event happened. This is the interesting part of Vince Gilmer, like, or, or any person who's branded as a criminal or is branded as a murderer. You know, what makes a murderer? You know, and for him, you can go way back to his early childhood and see the vast amount of trauma that affected him. You know, the bizarre things that he was starting to do, like that people didn't quite understand or, you know, what formed his personality that people thought was just a little quirky. But, you know, for me, the process was kind of going back 
retrospectively in, in dissecting his brain in a way. Cause that was <laughs> my previous life was a neurobiologist and I studied psychology. So it was really interesting to go back and just think about what are the thousand hits that took him down the aspects of his life that like really contributed to his mind going awry. And they're almost infinite when you think about it. Hmm. But there are five primary things that really affected his demise that contributed to his brain that was beginning to come apart. With his childhood, he has a sister, is that right? He has one sister. Mm -hmm. So tell me what happens. He's a young boy and he has a sister and his father is very troubled from the war, it sounds like, just from the beginning. Yeah, his, his father was a troubled soul who had many struggles. They moved around for work. He went to Vietnam, and at that point, he something really changed. His wife, his name is Gloria, she recognized that something was very different with him, that he was becoming a different person and didn't understand why he would be violent at times or erratic and impulsive and really demonstrated an array of emotions that he didn't have before. And it was at, at that time, too, that like the abuse that he was exerting on the family worsened, and that included Vince and his sister. So there were moments of, of sexual abuse with the children as they were growing up. And that was something that was unfortunately a consistent thread in, in their lives growing up. It was something that he hid from Vince's mother often, but it was, it really defined his childhood, the childhood of living with uncertainty with his father, the childhood of experiencing sexual abuse from their father and also physical abuse towards their mother. Hmm. So it was both ways. But he seems to overcome this. Does it sound like he's having a backlash, you know, as he gets older, as in he's taking this out on society or he is seemingly troubled to other people? He goes to medical school and becomes a successful doctor. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah. Like that. this man is is a survivor. You know, we, we talk in medicine about like what defines a person. Like why are there people who succeed and why are there people that, you know, have a life that's committed towards you know, PTSD, anxiety, et cetera. And Vince Gilmer was clearly in the former category. He was a survivor. You know, he ran away from home when he was 17 years old because he felt like his life was threatened, finished high school on his own, went to the military, succeeded there, came back and miraculously got into medical school. He was never a great student and struggled with attention deficit, but um, he made it through. He survived medical school. He survived residency was challenged by exam taking, which was very hard for him. And, you know, he was a unique student and a unique resident in family medicine. He would do things that people didn't often understand, but now it's it's easy to kind of understand. He was running from his past, like his whole life. Hmm. He was running from his family. He was running from his father and really wanted to make up, I think, for the behavior that, that he had received from his father. And so when he was a resident, he designed a project, you know, to help people who had were associated with sexual abuse wow. and committed himself to taking care of, of children and adolescents too in his practice. So he was not looking back. He was really just looking forward. Was he speaking to his parents? Because it seems clear with what happens with his father, they reconnect. Is it happening at all as he's going through medical school or is he completely estranged from his family? He was mostly estranged from his father. He and his mother maintained relations, but their relationship was at times strained too. So he got married, married another doctor, and the two of them founded this clinic together. Hmm. And it was during those first days that his father was really, really coming off the rails and was living in the streets and, you know, doing drugs. Like he was not safe to live by himself. 
having delusional behavior, very promiscuous at, at the time. And so he, he eventually got his father placed in a mental hospital in, in North Carolina called Broughton Hospital. Wow. Which is our, our big public hospital in Western North Carolina. And that's where he stayed. That's where he stayed for a couple of years. You know, one of the ironies is the beginning of the story for me actually started back in, in 2005 when I was doing one of my first clinical rotations. And it was at Broughton Hospital. Hmm. <laughs> it was at this, this psychiatric hospital. And I got to know all the patients and I got to know this man, Donald Gilmer, Donald Dalton Gilmer. Oh, wow. Who's at the Jerry Psych Unit. I didn't know his, his story, but I, you know, I spoke to him and, you know, knew his first name, but didn't know much about him. Didn't know much about me other than I was a medical student. That was the summer before he was killed. Oh, wow. So many intersections with this story and with your story. What was his official diagnosis? Was it schizophrenia? Don's uh, diagnosis was thought to be schizophrenia. Okay. So he's in a mental health facility. His wife, who is Vince's mom, is, are they divorced or are they still married? They are divorced at that time. Okay. Vince has been in contact with his mother and he's been in contact with his sister. What ends up changing between the summer that you meet Don, the father, and when all of this happens? What changed is that Vince's life started becoming more difficult. In the the summer of that next year, he was driving to take his medical boards and he had a profound anxiety around test taking. And while driving to his boards, he had an accident in his truck and this truck Flipped over, hit a telephone pole. He was taken to the hospital. He was a trauma patient. He was unconscious. Didn't know his own name at that time. And it was after that summer that he started doing more poorly. Getting through clinic was more difficult. He would have to run next door during lunch to like load up on caffeine and chocolate just to make it through the afternoons. He and his wife struggled more in their relationship. And it was that winter that he and his wife decided to separate. And throughout the spring, he found it more difficult to run the practice by himself, to stay organized, to stay well-groomed. He was just like really struggling in his life at that point. And it was the summer, that following summer in June, that he drove to the mental hospital to retrieve his dad. And he wanted to bring his dad back to Asheville so that he could be closer to him and have, you know, keep an eye on him. Um, just down the street, there was an assisted living facility. So he was going to watch him more closely there. There are a couple of things that I need to untangle first. So before we talk about why in the hell that would ever happen, why would you go retrieve a man who systematically abused you for a very long time? Is Vince at this point also diagnosed with schizophrenia? Is that what we're we're getting to? Is that there is a similar diagnosis with the son as there was with the father? No, people thought Vince was just having midlife crisis. He wasn't having symptoms of schizophrenia. And, you know, I've always wondered, like, why did he go get his father? Like, being around his father was the most stressful part of his life. And he had done a good job, like, sort of evading him over the several years. But it it really speaks to who he is as a person. Like, he, despite all the trauma, despite the stress and the tension, he still wanted to care for for his father. It was a remarkable decision in my mind that he, he actively went to pick him up. His intention was to bring him home. He had made a contact with the assisted living facility there. Everyone was expecting them to arrive at six o'clock that evening. He had a bed that was waiting for him. The nurses were waiting for him. Everything was planned and, and ready to go. But that's not what happened. 
Do we have a sense for what did happen from the time that he picked him up at the facility to the time he was supposed to go to the assisted living facility? Did Dr. Gilmer, before he was arrested or during trial or any of this, did he say what the conversation was like that might have triggered this? He writes about it very clearly. But what happened was he, en route back home, he wanted to give his his dad a little outdoor outing. So he wanted to take him to a lake that he could experience before moving into this permanent assisted living facility. And during that time, he kept hearing voices in his head. And, and for days leading up to this, he, he recognized that he was hearing voices, voices that he couldn't control. And this was also during a time that he stopped, sort of precipitously stopped his antidepressant, his SSRI. Hmm. A lot of people have problems when they stop their SSRIs. And so he was realizing that he couldn't stop these voices. And then his father was there. They drove to an Arby's. His father like started humming a song that he used to hum when he was a child. And this was an indication to him that, you know, that his father was was going to had sexual abuse interests and, and that's what happened that day. And so <sighs> he tried to resist his father. Of course he was stronger than his father and his father kept pushing it according to him. And at that point he he couldn't resist the voices any longer that were telling him to kill his father. So in, in that moment, he was purely delusional and did not have control over his external voices. Is Dr. Gilmer saying that he believed that this was going to happen, that his father was indicating that he wanted to sexually abuse him as an adult at this lake? Well, I only know what, what Vince indicated and that that's his father tried to aggress him wow. that night. Yeah. So they're at the lake, and he has these voices in his head, and he acts. So he strangles his father. Is that right? That's correct. And what is his thinking after this? Because he does some planning that is a little surprising. And I'm sure this is what made reporting for you complicated is you've got someone who clearly has a mental illness, but who also is clearly thinking of a way to cover up what he just did. You know, this is like part of any any of these stories, right? Like, we want to know, like, what did happen in the moment? And, you know, I, I don't think Vince really knew what was happening in the moment. Like, everything turned dark for him. He was resorting to these sort of instincts of what to do. And, you know, I don't think the cover-up was something that was, it was certainly not an intentional process. I think it was something he was just doing, just trying to react in the moment. And it's easy to imagine in that moment that he was completely disassociated, that he, as most children or people of abuse who, when they are being abused, they disassociate as a primal like defense mechanism. I think that was happening for him too. And I think he probably freaked out and was like, Oh my gosh, what happened? What, who am I? What, what happened? And then, you know, tried to cover it up, but it clearly wasn't a very well thought through plan because he just put the body on the side of the road and drove back home. He didn't try to hide the, the body per se. He just drove back home, but he did cut off his fingertips. Is that what happened? That is true. Wow. Yeah, but he also left the tag on his clothes that had his name and ID number from Broughton Hospital. So yeah. a thinking person wouldn't have done the act that way. Like that was a, an act of desperation, an act of delusion, and an act of utter frustration. And, you know, it was also the culmination of his, his whole life. Like his whole life had, had culminated in this moment where he had escaped his past in large part. And then, and then it all came back crashing upon him in that moment. 
He has bloody rags also in his vehicle. I mean, you're right. He's not doing a great job at a cover-up. It sounds like this is the one thing that he thought of in his head that maybe could help at that point, and, and the rest, it was just panic. Yes, I think so. What is the series of events that happens after that? Someone obviously finds Don Gilmer on the side of the road at some point. So he was quickly found after this you know, tragic event happened. Like within minutes, he was found. Somebody drove by and spotted the body. And then, you know, I, I think Vince even like passed the police as he was driving out. And so Vince came home and tried to clean himself up and then went and saw patients for the next three days in clinic as if nothing had ever happened. I mean, this was the confusing part for a lot of people to understand. It was confusing for the, the sheriff and the judge and the jury and for me to reconcile how could this have happened. How could a man have committed this tragic killing and then gone to see patients without them realizing that anything had happened? What does it take to pull that off? And did he pull it off because he really didn't know what happened? Like he had completely dissociated from it. Yeah. Or was it like the final act of him trying to save himself after practicing for a whole lifetime, trying to save himself from his parents? You know, I guess it must have been a really complex time for him during those first hours and days after this happened. And then eventually the detective caught up with him pretty quickly and was convinced that Vince was responsible. Would the psychiatrist who evaluated Vince say this is a hallmark of what he's suffering from with schizophrenia where he is able to disassociate himself? And it does not mean that... This was done even particularly out of malice. This was just a part of what he was feeling based on what happened to him as a child. And something that his dad did clearly triggered it, whether it was attempted sexual assault or the song or just something being in the same presence with him. The aggression that his dad directed towards him was, I think, the trigger. Hmm. You know, when you think about, I mean, we see patients, their threshold for buffering stress, anxiety is so, so narrow whether it be, you know, their perpetual state of PTSD or or generalized anxiety, you know, for events, like he had just also had a traumatic brain injury. Hmm. That can trigger a lot of people. You know, it's very common for people to have emotional lability to be easily triggered, yeah. irritable, agitated following a traumatic brain injury. That had happened just a few months before this happened. And the divorce, he was relatively newly separated and divorced from his wife. That was traumatic. The abrupt cessation of his medications was traumatic. We see people yeah. all the time who have symptoms of withdrawal after stopping SSRIs. More commonplace than people realize. And we, we see profound symptoms just from that. You know, that on top of history of PTSD, but also on top of, of what we were beginning to see as another bizarre like, neurologic process that later became clear and had, that no one knew about at the time of the trial. When he showed up for trial, he had these sort of bizarre symptoms. Like he was, it was difficult for him to put words together. His posture and his gesticulations and his fingers, this like these sort of shaking movements that he had was a little bit bizarre. They were triggered by, you know, the police being close to him, triggered by his lawyer. They like, they were easily triggered during that time. So much so that he fired his lawyers. And what would be the kind of craziest thing for someone to do for their own murder trial? Who would, would be to fire your your lawyer and actually believe that you could do a better job. And he he did believe that he could do a better job than his lawyer. People thought that mostly this was dictated by the actions of a forensic psychologist who bought the diagnosis that Vince was a malingerer. Now, what is that? Can you explain that malingering? Yeah, malingering is, is simply that you're faking symptoms, okay, symptomology for secondary gain. 
some people thought that like he was, that he was playing crazy, that he was like smart enough to do so because he knew the symptoms as a doctor and that he could pull it off okay. with his, his history. So this first forensic psychologist says he's faking it, obviously. This is cold-blooded murder. Mm-hmm. Did anyone, did detectives or did the attorneys, did his former defense attorneys bring people to the stand at some point to say, this is what happened with his father, this is his family history, this is his own erratic behavior that points to a mental illness? None of it came up. What do you think the reason is? Well, the reason is because he fired his lawyer. Yeah. And, and was representing himself and was incapable of, of highlighting, oh, you know, as a clinician in particular, highlighting, oh, maybe I had a traumatic brain injury from the crash. Maybe I have underlying mental illness because of my lifelong history of trauma. Right. None of that was clearly brought up and he didn't have a witness on his behalf. His witness was to be his sister, who was to corroborate the lifelong history of abuse. But his his sister never made it. She never made it to trial. And it was later believed that she was actually murdered herself during the trial. Wow. And she has never been seen again. Ugh. By who? Who would have done that? His mother thinks that she knows who did it. It was a domestic abuse issue. Oh, wow. So not related to the case. This is just a really terrible coincidence. I wonder, even if this came out and was presented, that he had been sexually abused by his father when he was younger, do you think that would have made any kind of a difference in the trial? Well, I think if it had been corroborated, it certainly would have been part of the equation. But because they believed that he was he was cold-blooded, they believed that he was a malinger. Yeah. And so they didn't believe it. I don't think the jury or the judge believed it and In the end, the judge condemned him as a cold-blooded murderer and offered the worst punishment that he could for the Commonwealth of Virginia in that moment, which was life without parole. He wasn't being tried for a capital crime. You know, the witnesses that he called to the stand were people like his mother, Hmm. his previous girlfriend, who was traumatized by this whole thing. Hmm. So he he really didn't have a credible professional source to say, to even ask the right questions. Now, in other trials, when... A defendant says, I want to fire everybody and I don't need representation. I have often read that the judge will still assign them a defense attorney for reference because otherwise it leaves them wide open for a fantastic appeal. Did that not happen? He didn't even have somebody sitting there with legal expertise in case he needed something? No, he did. The lawyer that he fired, the judge did ask him to sit in in the courtroom, Okay, but he, he wasn't very helpful. So he is found guilty and he has been sentenced to life and he begins serving his sentence. Do you have an idea of what life was like for him or has been in a penitentiary? I mean, this must just be incredible. I'm sure there are a lot of details about the lack of treatment that he's had for his mental illness. So, that you know, this was like the, the big discovery for me because when I started becoming curious about him and eventually when I went to, to visit him in person, which was something I felt like I had to do. Yeah. I had to see him. My life was becoming complicated and full of paranoia at times. And a patient told me that the events was getting out and that, of course, he would come find me, like that I would be like a potential victim for him. And, you know, I, I didn't really take that so seriously, but but it started making me think about, gosh, well, you know, I inherited his life. Yeah. Like I took his practice. 
I took the joy that he had as a physician. I was continuing in the life that he had dreamed about his, his whole life. And so, you know, it made sense that if he got out, he would, you know, I didn't know what he would do, but I decided that I needed to know. I needed to visit him. And, and I also wanted to tell him that his patients loved him. Hmm. He was still revered. Even after all these years, he was still revered as their good doctor. And I, I felt compelled to tell him. And I also started feeling a great a connection with him from the stories of his patients and, and wanted to know the truth. And so Sarah Koenig of This American Life, the two of us went to the prison to visit him, which is a prison called Wallens Ridge, which is a supermax prison in Virginia. And that was the first prison I'd ever witnessed. It was the first time I'd set foot in a prison. So it was a big trigger, you know, for me to see what the inside of a prison looks like and, and to begin hearing stories from vents, which were horrific. Mm. At that point, he, you know, he was like emaciated. He was only 50 years old at that point, but he looked like he was maybe 70. Hmm. He didn't have any teeth because they had all been beaten out of his head. Hmm. He had spent countless weeks, months in solitary confinement at that point. No treatment, I'm assuming. Well, no treatment. Because, I mean, they this was like 10 years into his incarceration no. and they still believed that he was faking these symptoms. And the symptoms at this point were he was like shuffling to walk. Mm-hmm. He had these uncontrollable movements in his hands. And so people just kind of wrote it off like he's still faking or maybe he's depressed and anxious, but he wasn't being treated with anything. He wasn't being treated with therapy. He wasn't being treated with medications. He was an animal trying to survive in prison. And that that was what I saw for the very first time. And it was striking. I mean, it was traumatizing like, to witness that. What is Sarah's role? Did you all produce an episode of This American Life for this case? Yeah, so Sarah and I worked together for six months. At some point, I realized that that I needed some guardrails and some mentoring to try to dig into what happened to him. So I got connected with Sarah, and we did the deep dive together. And she gave me an introduction to journalism and really helped push the process much faster than that I would have ever done on my own. Like we blazed through six months of investigation that would have taken me years to do probably. So that that was her role. And then we put together a piece for This American Life called Dr. Gilmer and Mr. Hyde. What is the takeaway, do you think, from the majority of listeners to that episode and people who read your book that there is just a tragedy with mental illness and in the criminal justice system and the intersection between the two that we are just failing people who are in prison for very, very complex issues? Well, the takeaway for me was was defined by a later event. After seeing him for the first time, I realized like there's something wrong with him, either a deeply psychiatric or, or neurologic process. And so I, I went back and dragged a psychiatrist, kind of bandito into the prison so he could observe him with me. And it was clear watching him that he had a, a neurologic process. So as we exited the prison, the other doctor, Dr. Bowie, brought up and said, is it possible that he has Huntington's disease? Walking to the car, we put the diagnosis together and then, you know, check, check, check all these things. They all lined up with Huntington's disease, which is a, a rare genetic disorder. So for me, like, you know, what is the story about? Like the story was, you know, how do you get a man out of prison? Hmm. And the first step was making the official diagnosis, which meant finding an ally in prison who, who later became the psychiatrist in a different prison because Vince threatened to kill himself. In the week after, after I saw him, they moved him to a different prison. And there was an amazing psychiatrist there named Dr. Colin Angliker, who was able to peer through all of these previous like biases that had been made about Vince Gilmer and was like, that's bullshit. Hmm. And started seeing him as a, you know, as a tabula rasa and, and 
trying to look at him for who he was and making sense of his history. And, and together, we we were able to get the genetic testing, which confirmed that he had Huntington's disease. Wow. And then Sarah left me to continue with her life because she was starting the Serial podcast at that point. Hmm. She discovered the Anon case through one of the lawyers that we were working with. So the Serial podcast was actually born from, from Vince's case. And she asked me, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and so that was also kind of what the book is about. Like, what what am I supposed to do? We have this terminally ill, mentally ill, neurologically ill patient who's in prison now who never should have stepped one foot in prison if the diagnosis had been made before, including the abuse, including the TBI, including the Huntington's disease. It would have been clear that he needed to be in a mental hospital. And so then, of course, I jumped into becoming a student of, of law, trying to figure out, well, what what does it take? You know, is this a habeas corpus problem? Is this a clemency problem? Trying to put together a legal team that would would come together for free with me to help save this man. Thereafter was the next 10 years, wow. still leading up to today, like trying to liberate him, learning about the politics of Virginia. How do you grant clemency for someone who's committed murder and being disappointed at every turn, learning that the process is like almost impossible, like get someone out of prison, even when the stars are lining up. Because now Vince, you know, had millions of people who listened to the story. We had all the PR that we needed. We had Ira Glass advocating for us. We had teams of people who were lining up. We had lawyers coming out of the woodworks who wanted to help support, you know, our case. And we eventually had a formidable team with help from the, the Innocence Project of Virginia to help work on his case. So we did. And then we had rejection after rejection. We had mm. clemency rejection by the next two governors. Based on what grounds, though? I mean, what was the reason given? They don't give you a reason. Hmm. <laughs> Our assumption or, you know, through the grapevine was that he wasn't sick enough, that he wasn't sick enough to be released. I mean, even after the This American Life story came out, there were a series of people, including the judge, who inspired the release of the psychiatrist who represented Vince, who took care of Vince in prison, that psychiatrist was eventually let go hmm. after a 40-plus you know plus year career in forensic psychology. This is what we were fighting. We were fighting also a governor who was being indicted himself. <laughs> we were fighting against an, another governor who wanted to be president of the United States. And so, we, you know, we were learning that being granted clemency is not about, it's not a clinical decision. It's not always a humanistic decision. It's oftentimes grounded in politics. So what ultimately ends up happening with Vince Gilmer? So, well, ultimately, I become so disillusioned and angered by this process that I thought would take us weeks to get him out of prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, after the, the first rejection, that's when I decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this story. I'm going to tell this in a book in a way that a lot of people can understand, like, what actually did happen to him? Like, what are all the insults that contribute to, like, someone's mental capacity to be compromised? And I wanted people to see that. I wanted people to see events for the good person he was and not this one horrific event that happened in his life. Like, I wanted the whole story to be borne out. I wanted people to see the politics of it. I wanted people to realize that rehabilitation doesn't take place in prison. Um, and I wanted people to understand, like, this isn't a problem that's just defined by a, a bad trial or, you know, dirty politics. Like, this is a, a problem that's defined by overall the lack of mental health resources in our country. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a primary care doctor, I see this every day. Trying to get someone into one of our mental health facilities is, is it's like playing the lottery, you know? 
realizing that, you know, the, the scarcity of psychiatrists in, in our country, especially in rural places, is, is tremendous. Hmm. I wanted people to see that. I wanted people to understand that humans are all vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Is Dr. Gilmer still in the penitentiary or has anything happened with politics? Now there's a new governor, right, in Virginia, relatively new in Virginia. So the governor Northam rejected our clemency petition. This was 18 months ago. And I was furiously writing, writing, writing. The publication of the book wasn't going to come out until after the governor's term, but Valentine, Penguin Random House, enabled me to get some pre-release copies that I flooded the office with. And, you know, we were at this point grasping for every every string we could pull, trying to build relationships within, you know, the governor's circle. And, you know, I have no idea what pushed it across the line. You know, the, I know there are people that read, read this story, read Vince's story in my book, but on his last day in office, he reversed his clemency rejection decision, which is kind of unprecedented. Amazing. So I I thought at that point, oh, wow, we were rejoicing. We did it. You know, we like spent 10 years working on this. And now he was going to finally find a hospital, which was the only thing we were asking for the entire time was just to get him to a hospital. Yeah. We weren't asking for freedom, complete freedom. We were asking for a hospital. And this next act of the story is like, oh, my God, it has been impossible to get him into a hospital. Virginia has closed their doors to him. Universally, we received no support from the Department of Mental Health nor the Department of Corrections to get him to a hospital. And the tragedy is that there's a mental hospital that shares the parking lot Hmm. with the prison where he's at. You can literally throw a stone from the front porch of the prison into the mental health center. They wouldn't help negotiate us getting him there, which I saw as absolutely inhumane. But he has clemency. I mean, can't you just go? What happens? No. Clemency is, you have to play by the rules of the clemency as determined by the governor. In this clemency, which like he he sorted out in the, literally the last hours of his governorship, it wasn't very detailed or clear, but it's, it simply stated that Vince was responsible to get himself into a hospital, mm. which is impossible. You can't do that without, you know, internal help from the Department of Mental Health. So we've been looking for places in North Carolina to get him into as a transitional place to eventually get him to a place actually like Broughton Hospital where he was, where his father was. It would be a place that would be ideal to take care of his needs. We've been rejected by five different private hospitals and many of whom maybe don't have the resources to take care of a patient like Vince, but you know, he's been si- surviving in prison basically alone, just fine. Like any place will be better than than prison. Yeah, But they, you know, a lot of hospitals are don't want any risk of negative PR. Yeah. Or, or they don't want any risk of, of having a quote-unquote dangerous patient on their wards. And so that's made it an uphill battle to get him out. So we did a fundraiser and raised $100,000 a month or two ago. And um, we're trying to use that money to help leverage opening the doors, which it, it's been very helpful because the attorney general wants to know that we have money to be able to pay for a hospital. Mm-hmm. They want to have assurance that he will actually make it in. And so thanks to Quentin Quarantino and others, Trudy Styler and, and Sting, like we, you know, some people like really contributed to Vince's cause that has enabled us to be able to have other conversations. So we were just rejected by another hospital this week and think we have another option that I can't speak of yet that's coming up, but fingers crossed that in the next few weeks, we're going to have him out. But he's, he's the only clemency granted person, I can only imagine, who has spent more than a year in prison still after his clemency 
freedom. And he still continues to be put in solitary confinement from time to time. Because of behavior? Because of they don't understand him. Like they don't understand why he can sometimes like blurt out things that may be inappropriate. But um, he's a man who's struggling for his life with mental illness, who's, you know, what's the worst thing you could do to a patient like that is put them in solitary confinement. Does he understand what's happening? Does he understand what you've done over the past decade and Sarah and all of these advocates and the Innocence Project? And does he comprehend any of that based on what you know? He comprehends all of it. I saw him two weeks ago in the prison. The warden graciously let me in to, to see him. You know, all prisoners, you probably know, have been essentially in solitary confinement throughout COVID because it, yeah. they haven't allowed visitors. So this was the first time for me to see him since the beginning of COVID. And he, he just inspires me. <laughs> he holds on to like this, this optimism of getting out. Hmm. He still has this optimism of being able to give back in some way to students to teach them about Huntington's. Huntington's, which of course did not like make him kill his father. Like, Huntington's is not, I want to be clear, it's not a killer disease. Right. He was compromised by all these other things too. But yeah, he, he's so grateful and humble and can't wait like to get out. But, you know, I feel guilty. I feel extremely guilty because I haven't gotten him out. It's taken over a year and we've had these failures. And I keep telling him one more week, one more month, it's going to happen for Thanksgiving. It's going to happen at Christmas. Oh, that's hard. It's going to happen at New Year's. Like, you know, like it's hard for him to even believe what I tell him anymore. And at each of these junctures, like we have had like great confidence that that he was going to get at Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's hard to not give him hope when he's struggling so much, but boy, that hurts when it doesn't work out. It hurts both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sort of contributes to the kind of learned helplessness. I think that all incarcerated people experience at some point when they no longer have hope. Yeah. You know, they, they no longer have anything to dream about. And, and, you know, it's like just another failure for him. Like one more failure after failure. And of course he's wondering why, why don't these hospitals want to take me? Hmm. Like why? I don't understand that. I'm a doctor who's committed myself to service. This thing happened. I'm cleared. I'm clemency granted. Why would these hospitals not want to take me? So, you know, trying to explain that kind of thing to him is so hard also. Yeah. I think it's remarkable, your story that you come to this town, you're a young doctor, you hear this story, and it has very clearly affected you, changed your whole life, sort of a career change trajectory. You become an author. To me, it really just shows, it's an illustration of how one person, one event, one crime can shift the lives of so many people. It's remarkable. Well, it's true. You know, when you look at how illness affects a family too, where you look at how one incarcerated person in a family that may have been a result of, you know, one episode of methamphetamine use that led to a, a tragic event, you know, that, that affects everybody. It affects the, the person, the family. It trickles down, you know, throughout the community even. Yeah. So Vince's story is that, like his family has been, has just had a series of tragedies, you know, for, that began, you know, from his great-grandfather and his grandfather who also had Huntington's because if you have Huntington's, then you have a 50-50 chance of, of getting it yourself. Hmm. And so it's, it's been this endless cycle of abuse and trauma that, that's contributed, you know, ultimately to, to events. He's lucky to have you. Well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, this, this is what we're supposed to do as doctors is to advocate. You know, we think of family medicine and one of our 
Forte's his advocacy. And I mean, obviously, like, what does it take for me to understand that the stars like align for me to be in this place? You know, I'm not a super religious guy, but like, it feels like that this was supposed to happen and that I was put in his path. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.